You are listening to Shadow of the Wing, and I am Antonia Chain. This show is a serialized telling of the novel Shadow of the Wing by Antonia Chain. To find out more, visit antoniachain.com. Listeners are advised that some content is only suitable for a mature audience. Don Moody liked to be called Blade. The name Nightblade was originally given by the press. He thought it was cool and had attempted to adopt it as his own when he came to the hospital, but most patients used it when mocking him, though he hadn't cottoned on to that. Not the brightest of murderers, but brutal and savage nonetheless. He'd trained as a butcher when as a youth, and he put those skills into his crimes as he skinned women or more accurately skinned them until they bled to death or died of shock. The women suffered agonising and unimaginable deaths. He took his time and enjoyed it. He had also thoroughly enjoyed reading about himself in the papers, so much so that he cut as many women as possible before he was caught, just so he could see the stories in the papers. He also thoroughly enjoyed his trial, halted for a while after he managed to jump out of a witness box and attempt to strangle his own brief. He was subsequently sectioned and ended up at Hilgram. Blade Moody thought he was famous, and his ego was well and truly stoked by the visitors Carl brought to meet him. Jess thought it was sickening to watch, bordering on voyeuristic to listen to him tell his story, and noted that much of what he said was in fact told like a new story, and Carl encouraged him. Tell them about the one that got you caught, he said, almost salivating. Don launched into a half-made-up, half-bad fiction account of the last of his grisly murders. Bad enough in real life, but given added titillation to his audience by the addition of stories of the live removal of breasts and cannibalism, neither of which Jess knew was true. The psychiatrist looked bored. Interestingly, although Jess tried to not be unduly sexist about it, she noted that the male nurse looked as if he was eagerly taking on every word, while the female nurse had a look of utter disdain, if not contempt, on her face. She liked the female nurse for that. The psychiatrist was more interested in the scars on his arms. Don proudly showed them his arms and then lifted the leg of his jeans, making him look a little chaplain-esque until the scars on his legs came into view, erasing any visions of clowns. His arms and legs were a nightmare vision. They were the worst scars Jess had ever seen on a living human being. Whole chunks of flesh were missing. The skin, without capacity to stretch and cover the wounds, had simply scabbed over and grown into a thin, translucent veneer of tissue paper skin over the bone, sinew and flesh. It was raw-looking, with newer open wounds that were in fact unhealed and bloody. 
The red, blue and white speckled flesh looked like raw steak gouged and sliced and undulating. So damaged his skin, it was now impossible to stitch. Every visible inch of both arms and legs were ripped, gouged and sliced like an alien vista. Don was proud of his wounds. I cut, he said. I'm a cutter. See those scars? I did them. I did them myself and I like it. I'm mentally ill, you see. See, that's what I was trying to give them girls, that feeling. It's the best high in the world. You cut and that feeling, it's like having the best sex or drugs you can imagine. It makes you feel like your heart's going to explode and then comes that pain, that sweet, sweet pain. He was on a roll and obviously and visibly becoming animated by having an audience for his verbal pawn. Jess thought it was time to shut this pathetic spectacle down. She was not willingly prepared to be a part of his masturbatory fantasies, even if Carl was. Perhaps we could all go to my office. John Morello's there and he's looking forward to meeting you all and answering your questions. Jess was interested to note that both Dom and Carl shared virtually identical looks of hatred towards her for spoiling their moments in the spotlight. But where does he get the sharps? said the psychiatrist in a barely penetrable cork accent. As you know, patients as determined as these will find ways to hurt themselves whatever we do. Even paper cuts can be destructive if done enough times in the same place. The meeting was very civilised and the guests asked a range of questions and also gave some fascinating insights into issues related to people detained who'd been involved in paramilitary exercises during the Troubles in Ireland. For some of these patients, the issues continued to be as raw as they'd been in the 80s, although relationships between the North and South of Ireland had more recently been calmed with a new spirit of positive cooperation. Some, for example, refused to be treated by Protestant psychiatrists. Others, during treatment, talked of involvement in terrorist activities that challenged the Hippocratic Oath and commitment to retaining confidentiality of their doctors. It was interesting stuff and new to Jess. They swapped business cards when the guests left, but Jess knew it was unlikely that they would actually be in contact again. When they'd gone... Jess needed to raise the issue of Terry again, but she was dreading it. She found John's refusal to listen and his doubt of her challenging professionally and upsetting on a personal level. John was her mentor and she looked up to him. She wanted him to feel the confidence in her that he'd always had until recently and she didn't know how their professional friendship had started to go so wrong. John, I have to discuss this with you and I know you don't want to hear it or maybe think I'm not coping with this environment but I have to take the risk of that because this is so important. She told John that she considered that Terry in some way had been involved in both Peter and Eddie's death. She wasn't sure how with Peter but she thought perhaps Terry had supplied Eddie with the condoms for the ligature he'd used. Jess said that she thought Terry may be playing some kind of malicious game with staff, especially, it seemed, towards her, and she thought Terry had more plans. It came out as an emotional garbled rush rather than the considered paced professional tone Jess had planned on. John sat at his desk, Jess on the chair to the left. 
He concentrated on a spot on the wall in front of him and for what felt like an interminable length of time, weighing up what Jess had said. The fingers of one hand tapped rhythmically on the desk in front of him. Jess was pleased and relieved that he was at last hearing her out. The suggestion that a patient is involved in the death of other patients is potentially very damaging to the hospital. And we really have to shut this discussion down before it becomes a problem. I think it's extremely unlikely that what you're saying has any basis in reality. But I do not doubt that you believe it. I'm not questioning your judgment, Jess. I'm simply saying that I disagree. You've not presented me with the slightest piece of evidence. However, we do have an ongoing issue with your relationship with Terry. And frankly, it's getting in the way of our work and I'm getting weary of hearing about it. It's a pity you can't seem to work with her. I cannot spare you from the unit. So she will have to be moved probably to one of the other hospitals. Kirk Abbey is probably the best. Jess was both astounded and mortified. It was bad enough that John was suggesting that this was in some way a personal issue related to Jess. But this? She'd hoped that John would do something, but not this. Patients had so many basic human rights removed from them when they became incarcerated in top security hospitals. The loss of privacy, the loss of the right to have children, own pets, watch TV whenever they wanted, have sex, use the internet, go shopping. They also lost the right to choose where they were housed. But it was an accepted and understood norm that once housed, they were only moved if it was absolutely unavoidable. To begin with, there were only three special hospitals, so if one person moved, in reality, three moved because ward space was limited and there was a knock-on consequence. The other two, who would be affected, would suffer because of the decision to move Terry. In addition, a patient room, however lacking in privacy, was all they had. It was their space, their sanctuary, their home. Every patient would say without doubt that this was one of the worst things that could happen to them and they all held a secretly held dread that one day it would be their turn and there was little they could do about it. But John, Jess said, pleading in her voice, that just ships the problem elsewhere. It doesn't deal with it. I disagree, Jess. I think the only problem is your issue with Terry. And if she isn't here, there is no problem and we can stop having these conversations. I'll set the ball in motion and we'll get her and we'll tell her. John raised his palm towards Jess. No disagreements, Jess. That's my decision. Carl Langley could barely disguise his glee. Come on, cinders. It looks like we're getting shut of you. You have a meeting with John now. Terry despised Carl, and although she would usually make sure he knew how much she hated the name, he thought so witty. On this occasion, she did not. What are you talking about, shithead? Am I going back to the ordinary women's world? Who said I was? Terry was escorted to John's office by three nurses. Carl had revelled in the news he gave her. 
Although she almost retained her swan-like grace as she moved the corridors, the enmity was oozing from her like a hostile force field. The nurses had good reason to feel wary and were mindful of the pin-down training they'd received, should it become necessary. I am not being moved to Care Cabby. Terry spoke as soon as she walked into the room, not bothering with niceties and refusing a seat. Jess was absolutely furious with Carl. This was not how it was supposed to happen, and he did not have the right or the authority to tell Terry about the move. Despite arguments she had with John about his decision, he'd gone ahead and put plans in place. Terry had a room at Care Cabin and would be leaving in seven days. John had also told Jess that she was the one who would be telling Terry. It felt like punishment. It all went about as badly wrong as it could have done. Terry was too smart to believe the lame excuse about the transfer being about better facilities for her at Care Cabby and about her not fitting into the unit. She could not, of course, be told the real reason. She was enraged and inconsolable. She had for a long time been asking for a move to one of the women's wards within the hospital. She felt that being in the PTU with its reputation as housing the most dangerous individuals in the country marked her at high risk and made a placement to a less secure halfway house in the community unlikely. It was too big a jump. No one is ever moved to one of the other hospitals unless there's a problem. That's how it will be seen by the tribunal and I'll stand even less chance of getting out. Terry was talking about the mental health tribunal which had the power to decide whether she stayed under section, was moved to secure accommodation or even whether she could be released. It's true that a move to a different hospital would be perceived to be evidence of a need to move her, usually for behaviour related problems. I've told you before, let me out of the bloody PTU and onto a woman's ward, but I am not going to care, Cabby. You can forget it. It's not going to happen. At one point, it looked as if things might get physical, as Carl told her to calm down, and in doing so, grabbed her upper arm. She did not lash out or scream, but the poisonous, malevolent look she fired at him momentarily stunned the entire room, which it stilled. At this point, she quietly but pointedly demanded appointments with her social worker, the chair of the patient's council and with her advocate from Women in Special Hospitals, Penny Conway. She refused to engage in any further discussions and asked to be taken to her, it was said with the emphasis, room. Jess didn't know how it had happened that she was now in a top security hospital, surrounded by the criminals of nightmares, and yet she herself felt on trial. The group were in the boardroom, sat around the classy Regency table, watched over by the great and the good of years gone by. To Jess's right were Barrett Khan, who, although head of social work, was also Terry's personal social worker. Paul Richards, chair of the Patients' Council. Opposite, and sitting next to Sheila Margulies, was a woman Jess had never met before, Penny Conway, resplendent in floor-length purple dress. She was the director of WISH, 
the charity which supported and provided advocacy services for women in special hospitals. At the head of the table was a dour-looking, bespectacled older man introduced as Dr John Hemingway, an appointed psychiatrist from the Mental Health Commission. The Mental Health Commission was established in 2002 and part of its role was to protect the interests of those who are involuntarily committed to places such as Hilgram. Mostly their work involved ensuring that people were properly and legally detained according to law, and that people seeking to have a decision to be detained reviewed were giving a fair hearing. Jess wasn't quite sure what he was doing at the meeting, as it seemed somewhat out of remit. It could have been an invitation from Sheila as part of her efforts to protect the hospital from any suggestion of wrongdoing, or it could have been an invite from Penny, who she knew had exactly that kind of clout. As was typical of the hospital, Terry had not been invited to the case conference, even though a discussion was entirely about her and would have a major impact on her life. So please forgive my continuing failure to understand why exactly the decision to make Terry move was made. While she doesn't have any legal right to a choice about where she's housed, there does have to be at least a good reason to change where she lives. I'm sure I do not need to remind everyone that Terry is a patient, not a prisoner. She has rights. Paul started the conversation and Jess was not sure whether he was simply being a neutral advocate for Terry as part of his patient counsel role or whether he was actually trying to have the issue of Terry's possible involvement in Peter's death made more transparent. He looked to Jess for the answer to his questions. He had a, sorry, but I have to do this, look in his eye. Before Jess could respond, the psychiatrist spoke. Yes, I am quite concerned. I've examined Terry Thatcher and consider it would cause her considerable distress to be forced to move to another hospital without good reason. She has local support from WISH, her only support given that she's no family, and the charity, with the best will in the world, could not provide visitors so often to a place 300 miles away. Miss Thatcher has a good relationship with patients, as far as I can see, and she feels that she has insights into her condition through her treatment here. She is becoming able to cope with it. It could significantly impact on her mental health and thus ability to work towards tribunal if she were moved. The move must be reasonably justified. Jess noted that Terry had managed to persuade a skilled psychiatrist that she valued Hilgram Hospital. Penny Conway spoke up. We simply wouldn't be able to visit if she went to Kirk Abbey. We've not been able to raise enough funds to establish a regional office down there and unfortunately that also means that we would be able to offer very little in the way of support to Terry and this is a shame as we're really the only visitors she has. Barrett read out a statement that Terry had prepared on her own behalf. He looked bored as he read it. He looked to Jess that he did not believe a word of it but as her officially appointed social worker he too had an advocacy role, and he did what was required of him. He spent little time on the wards, and so had little investment one way or the other, and the care that had taken him to social work had long since been eroded by the demands of working in acute mental health. 
He was working towards his retirement and it showed in his manner. Terry wanted it to be known that she loved her small room. She felt of it as home and she was learning how to recover from her personality disorder about what she'd reflected and learned considerably as a consequence of the treatment regime. She had lots of friends in the hospital, she was studying towards a degree in the education centre and she was loving her work in the OT. She liked the staff and she got on well with them all. She would prefer to be put back on one of the main wards but she did not think she needed the treatment on the PTU but she was happy with how things were going generally and the proposed move would, she believed, be very, very upsetting for her. Jess barely recognised the person, Terry, via the board Barrett, described. The only people there to support the decision to move Terry out of Hilgram were Jess and John. The problem was Jess didn't support the decision, but had been put in the position of the key decision maker by John. Even as Jess was describing Terry's corrupting influence on the award and in the unit, she knew it sounded weak and indeed unsubstantiated. She felt unable to actually accuse Terry of being, if not a murderer, an accomplice to murder. It sounded unbelievable and she had absolutely no evidence to support it. Once an allegation of that sort was made, it set a whole set of wheels in motion and she really could not do so without firm evidence. It wasn't a surprise when it was agreed that Terry would not, after all, be moved to Kirk Abbey. Sheila was incandescent with anger, speaking in punctuated one word at a time exclamation pacing the floor of the now-emptied boardroom, stabbing her finger towards them both for emphasis. I do not want mental health commissioners being brought here by patients concerned about their rights being abused. Do I make myself absolutely clear? It was bad enough being shouted at by Sheila and feeling less like the respected professional and more like a silly schoolgirl. But worse was John's response to Sheila. He did not look concerned at all. He looked pleased and a little triumphant. The decision has been made, Jess, and I'm afraid that as much as I don't want to lose you from the PTU, if you really can't work with Terry, then you'll need to consider your position here. This has to be the end of it. You need to take steps to smooth the turf with her if you're going to stay. Jess, with startling clarity, realised that John had never intended to move Terry. He had cleverly and quite deliberately ensured that Jess's concerns had been effectively silenced, and in fact, the problem was now firmly perceived to lay with Jess and her apparent inability to work effectively with Terry. Jess had become the problem. She felt utterly and completely betrayed. enjoyed the show and would like to read more stories by Antonia Chain, you can find her on Facebook, Twitter, and at her website, AntoniaChain.com. Thanks for listening.